Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be able to gather together like this as your family and unite through your word and your spirit. Help us count this a privilege always. Help us see the opportunity we have and the way you take us out from the world to hear your word and to learn spiritual things, things that only you know, Father. And Father, most of all, we're thankful and grateful for you sending your son down out of heaven to become a man 2,000 years ago so that he could walk this earth, he could live a pure life, and he could be a pure sacrifice for all of us, taking away our sins. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that your spirit guide us and teach us tonight, and help us learn what you have planned for us tonight from eternity past. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 21. So Sunday was a great message uh, to recap, and um, I found myself forgetting a lot of the things that were taught a couple months ago. If you remember, we're continuing the series from a couple months ago. Um, I remember at one point on Sunday, pastor said, and that was all review. And I said to myself, it was? Like literally some of those points I never saw before, <laughs> which shows you uh, how forgetful we are and, and who knows what we even take in the first time and the second time that we learn something. So uh, we're going to recap Sunday a bit. And I want to start out with this point. I just want you to think about, just listen carefully to this point as we begin. The faithful keep on believing, waiting on God over time. The faithful keep on believing, waiting on God over time. Just think about that. This is what Scripture reveals, that through faith, which includes patience, if it's going to show itself out as true faith, we eventually receive the things of God. But it takes time. If everything were given to us at once, there's no real test of faith. And there's no real faith revealed either to anybody observing, man or angel. But in the faithful, the fruit of perseverance appears over time. Again, over time. On the board, this was the impetus for this conversation on Sunday, Hebrews 6, 11 through 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So be diligent. Realize the full assurance of hope till the end. You see, you see the passing of time as a requirement, as God gives us time to grow and to exercise faith? So the Spirit's been harping on the importance of this phrase that's in bold on your screen, through faith. Faith is the channel by which we reach God 
and have a relationship with him. It's the only way, it's the only channel to, to know the things of God. Because the things of God are not rational, as we'll get into later on. They're not even logical at times. They're things of God. They're supernatural. They're spiritual. And we're limited. And so faith is that channel that opens up our eyes and our hearts to understand the things of God. So on the board, through faith, could there be a larger statement regarding our lives? Could there be a more potent remedy to our ailments? Is there a greater ointment for our disciplinary wounds? Even the things we know we deserve, even the things we know we've done wrong and we're getting disciplined for. Is there a greater ointment than living through faith? Choosing to live by faith? Without faith, there can be no relationship with God. And as we saw on Sunday, Scripture tells us that we're saved through faith in Ephesians 2.8, but we're also sanctified experientially through this thing called faith. It's all done through faith, by God's grace, of course. And by God's grace, He gives us this faith to live by, to live through, to see the things of God. We saw in Romans, in Rome, on Sunday, Romans 12.3, Part B, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Remember, everyone's faith is different, isn't it? And isn't that what's beautiful about it? Just like every person is made different physically, everyone has different genetics and different whatever. You know, DNA, there's not one duplicate. So it is with faith. Do you think God, again, ever has to repeat himself? And he gives us all a different measure of faith as he sees fit, as he sees proper, and maybe he'll increase that at different times in our lives when we ask him. But here, we, here again we see that faith is a gift of God. God is the one doing the allotting to each person. You don't even choose how much faith you're going to have. You choose to submit to him. You choose to be humble and, and ask for faith. But he's the one that really gives you the faith. So it's all on him. And it's all on his abilities. So when we humble ourselves before him and ask him for more faith, he gives us the right measure and in his timing. Just think about that. You know, you might be lacking faith right now. I know there are times I lack faith in certain areas. And I have no choice but to simply ask him for more and rely on him to fill the gap. And he might not even do it right away. He knows the right time to do it. He knows if I'm really being humble or if I'm being a little bit prideful when I ask. I mean, he knows. So he gives us the right measure in his timing. And he's faithful. And it's through that faith that we experience victory in the spiritual life. It's only through faith, that channel, that we can experience victory in the spiritual life freedom, peace, things like that. On the board, again, through faith. Paul wrote about through faith being contiguous for every form of deliverance given by grace from the Lord. Every form of deliverance, whether it's saving faith or being delivered from problems in real life um, or spiritual dilemmas, every form of deliverance is accomplished through faith. 
being given by the Lord. And on the board, here's our problem in Galatians 3.3. 3. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, for example, when you first trusted in Christ, when you first believed, when He gave you that faith to believe, and then the Spirit was with you right by your side, doing it for you even, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Maybe years after your salvation, maybe years after you humbly turned to the Lord, and now you're trying to perfect yourself by yourself, by your own energy. See, our flesh enjoys getting in the way. Our flesh loves it, loves getting in the way of God and God's ways. It wants attention. It's like, look at me. Don't forget about me. Hey, I'm right over here. It's like uh, Horshack in Welcome Back, Carter. Remember him? Ooh, 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 ooh. Pick me. That's the flesh. Some young, you young people are looking at me like, uh, what are you talking about? Go home on YouTube and, and Google Horshack, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But that's the flesh. The flesh is like begging for attention. Like, don't forget about me. I want a little credit. Let me answer the question. Isn't that why kids do that, if you think about it? Why do kids in, in, in school get all excited and, and try to get higher than the next person to get called on so they can give the answer so they can feel good about themselves? Pride is fed at a very, very young age, right? But we hold on to it, don't we? We're pretty good at that. So the flesh wants some credit in this spiritual growth. Uh, we're not to call on it when it raises its hand. We need to ignore it. Whenever we try to contribute to God's plan, it's a form of arrogance and pride getting involved. And that's not through faith, right? That's not through faith. It's trying to earn your way through works, really. So don't listen to the flesh. Don't start by the Spirit and try to perfect yourself by your own human effort. You can't do it. Submit and surrender. And seek more faith. On the board again, regarding through faith. The reason the Bible frequently uses the concept through faith is because that is exactly how we are sanctified whether positionally at the moment of salvation or experientially in our daily walk. Since faith is a grace gift, it cannot be planned, manufactured, or empowered by man on his own. If, if nothing else makes you give up your flesh and the energy of the flesh, let that last part of this sentence help you give up. Since faith is a grace gift, which the Bible clearly says it is, it cannot be planned, manufactured, or empowered by man on his own. So stop trying to force or fabricate faith in your life, in your heart. God knows your heart anyway. Surrender. And that's the only way it's going to be a total work of God, and that's the only way you're going to be able to grow if you let God do the growth in you even finishing the good work in us. He promises to do that. 
It's his gig. He's the only one that can play music like that. Make, you know, spiritual champions, if you will, out of peons, out of sinners. So how could the apostles, think about this, how could the apostles have led and built on the church so well unless they had or if they had not understood relying on God's grace through faith. How could the apostles have led and built the church so well, which they did, if they had not understood relying on God and His grace through faith? They did understand that, at least after the resurrection, and maybe not before the crucifixion. But they knew how to rely on God's grace through faith. And God did mighty things through them because they realized and admitted fully they couldn't do it themselves. And so God can use peons like us in the same way. It's true we're nothing without them, nothing at all. We're disgusting at times, the way we listen to the flesh at times. But by grace, through faith, He will allow us to do mighty things in His name and for His mission. Mighty things, stuff that you right now think you can't do. He will allow you to do that, to participate in his plan in that way, if you submit to by grace through faith. So on the board, back to our main purpose. By grace they were prepared. The great work for any believer is to spread the gospel. We all need to be literally changed by grace through faith, in order to accomplish this good work. Jesus has left his precious salvation ministry to his sheep to carry on. We all need to be literally changed by grace through faith to accomplish his good works. There's no other way. And so the Lord trained and developed the apostles just like he does for all of us who submit to his word and his spirit. And as we, right now, we're going to start talking about leaders again, which came up on Sunday. What is a good leader? Remember years ago when Pastor taught how we're all thought leaders? Do you remember that? I mean years ago, at least five years ago. He taught how we're all thought leaders. Because we all have authority of our own soul. We all have free will. God gave us authority over our own soul to rule, quote-unquote, or run our own soul by free will. So just keep that in mind as we talk about being a good leader, because some of you think, I don't have any leadership positions in my life. Maybe none that you see, but you are a thought leader. You have authority over your own soul. So keep that in mind as we talk about being a good leader here. On the board, we saw on Sunday, leaders are made, not born. Like every leader worth their salt, They had to be trained up. Every leader requires training, beginning with the humility required to follow, regardless of personality. Every leader requires training, beginning with the humility required to follow. True leaders are not those that are naturally charismatic and can influence people. That's what I was thinking of on Sunday even as pastor was teaching. 
when I envision a leader, at least in my, you know, earthly frame of mind, I guess. True leaders are not those who are naturally charismatic and can influence people. That's not a true leader. A true leader is someone that cares about others and leads for the benefit of others. That's a true leader. He leads people that actually need leading, and he does it for their sake and for their benefit, not for his own or her own. So these type of leaders, they're made. They're made only by the power of God. We're not talking about those born with fleshly skills who lead and even deceive people under their leadership for selfish gain. That's not a true leader. All right, They may be good at deceiving. They may be good at what they do. But they're a horrible leader. They're, they're engaging in evil. So we're talking about true, divinely good leaders. On the board, man is born depraved, self-absorbed, egocentric, controlling, jealous, weak, etc., etc., etc. We're born this way. While he may have apparent requisite gifts such as intellect, persuasiveness, confidence, etc., without the constitution of a leader, he's merely a counterfeit. Without the constitution of a leader, he's merely a counterfeit. In other words, what's his makeup? What's his character? On the board, true leaders are rare because most of the rest are too arrogant to be trained up. That's why. They don't really want to learn. They just want to be. They want to be the leader. They don't want to learn how to be a good leader. They don't want to submit to anybody else. They want to jump ahead the chain of command. True leaders are rare because most of the rest are too arrogant to be trained up. They lack the patience and the willingness to surrender to authority, something that comes with humility. So they want the position without the refining of proper training. You know, it's <laughs> like some guy that, let's say he joins the fire department. Brand new fireman. Let me run into the building. I can do it. I'm brave. I'm strong. Let me run in. I don't need training. Look at me. And then what happens to him? Right? I mean, it's not a bad example. That's, that's a, a false leader. That's a, a weak leader who refuses to be trained up in humility so that he can be the best leader and a successful leader even. A lot of them, a lot of folks want selfish gain. They're not in it for the benefit of others who need the leading. So on leadership, one of the greatest shortcomings of wannabe leaders is that they fail to see that the issue is not seizing control. That's what the world believes. You want to be a leader? Seize control. Take hold, of, take hold of the ship and lead. But that's not the issue in being a good leader. It's rather seizing servitude. Seizing servitude. Every good leader serves another, and so on. And who seized servitude more than the Lord Jesus Christ? He even said himself, he said, I came to serve. I came to serve. The Lord Almighty said that. So who seized servitude more than him? Who showed us how to be a good leader 
better than him. So Jesus was the Lord God in the flesh. Yet he still submitted and followed the leadership of his heavenly father perfectly. It's mind-boggling when you think about it. So Jesus' humility, even uh, as the perfect one, made him a true follower first. A true follower first. Why did he need to be a follower? Wasn't he perfect? Wasn't he without sin? But he became a true follower first. He followed the Father's wishes and training to a T in humility. And therefore, at age 30, he was fully prepared to live life as the greatest leader and servant of men of all time. How did he become such a good leader? I mean, even as a man, as a human being, how did he become such a good leader? For 30 years, he followed his father's wishes to a T. Followed. And then he was ready to be the leader that God the Father wanted him to be. And God will train us as well to imitate Christ's example by grace through faith. He'll train those that are humble to do it right, to be patient, and through faith inherit the promises. On the board, we saw Sunday also the constitution of a leader. Man is born antagonistic towards God. A true leader must first be a true follower. Self-promoters lack the constitution for the job. The word demands testing, proof of ability, before a man ought to be ready for promotion. Arrogance never waits. Humility does. That right there is the difference. Arrogance never waits. Humility does. And we saw all those verses there on the board uh, that you can look up as backing for this reality. So ask yourself this question, okay? You, whoever you are, wherever you're at in life, it doesn't matter. You're a thought leader. You have been given authority over your own soul by God. How will you become well-trained if you don't have patience? How can anybody become well-trained if they don't have patience? Doesn't good training by necessity require the passing of time and learning and experiences over time? What did we begin with tonight? What was the statement we began with at the beginning? The faithful keep on believing, waiting on God over time. Those are the ones that are humble followers and will be ready to be a good leader one day. The faithful keep on believing, waiting on God over time. Think about Paul, which this came up on Sunday. He spent three years after his conversion being personally prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ before he even began his ministry. Three years of daily training with the Lord. Talk about intense training. And the apostles, too, the other apostles that walked with the Lord, it was about three years, wasn't it? about three years of training before he went to the cross. So time and patience 
is a necessity in good training. Time and patience. <laughs> and don't be like, I already have three years under my belt. What's God waiting for in my life, right? I mean, they, they were personally taught by the Lord. I think they had a, you know, a little more intense training, let's say. But time and patience is a necessity in good training. Even Jesus' own family took a long time to come around and believe in him. I mean, you're growing up with the Messiah. He had brothers and sisters. You're growing up with the Messiah, this perfect one who hasn't sinned. You can imagine they were probably mad at him because he never got in trouble, right? He never did anything wrong. But you'd think they'd see something in him, and especially when he came out publicly and said, I'm him, I'm the Messiah. You would think they would have believed. It took them, many of them, until after the resurrection to believe in him. So that, by the way, let this give you some hope. Let this give you some encouragement. I know it does me. For your family members that you think will never come around. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? I mean, you can all think of somebody. I can think of so many people in my family that I pray for, that, that bothers my soul sometimes that are just negative or whatever. And um, this gives me hope. Jesus' own family didn't believe for years, decades even, until they came around. So, you know, time and patience for your training and for bringing others around. And remember this too, God's never in a rush. He's never in a rush like we are. He'll keep us here on earth as long as he needs to, to get the job done. And to give the humble a chance to grow and bring him glory in their lives before going home. God's not in a rush. You and I are. We get frustrated. We lose patience. God's not in a rush. He's like, just humbly follow me, will you? One day at a time. But patience is a key to living out God's plan. And it's part of a, a godly life. So on the board, we saw on Sunday the apostles were taught patience. A good portion of humility is patience. Perseverance, as one of the key fruits of believers, is something that is wrought alongside of patience. Jesus taught his apostles to be patient and wait on God's timing for everything. As we'll continue to see, patience had to be developed in the apostles. They weren't normally patient. We could again argue till after the resurrection. They didn't, you know, exercise the faith that, you know, God wanted them to live by. The patience even. Especially someone like Peter. Mr. Foot and Mouth, which implies a lack of patience right there, doesn't it? He was developed and used by Christ to be the leader of his church, this one who lacked patience. So there's hope for all those that remain humble, because Peter remained humble. And God brought him along. God caused the growth. And God used him in mighty ways because of it. So we were reminded on Sunday, perspective is everything, including regarding patience. On the board, the value of perspective. 
Do not worry about what you don't understand yet. Focus on those things that the Lord has revealed through His Spirit in you. Consider how very far the grace of God has already delivered you. Stop and think. As you're frustrated and impatient about certain things in your life that you, you want, places you want to be spiritually, you know, things you want to understand, you just don't get it yet. Instead, stop and think of how far the grace of God has taken you already. Remember where you came from and be grateful always, as in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. So let's continue to be patient and willing to learn as He trains us all. The Spirit's given us this framework on the board as part of our training, sending out or sending the apostles out. Jesus called them. Jesus trained them, both academically and on-the-job training, and Jesus sent them out. Some of you want to rush through this. You've seen this slide about 100 times. And you so you want to rush through this. Be patient. Right? We'll get there when we get there. God must still have a little more for us. More meat on the bone, so to speak. So two months ago, we left off with the second point about Jesus training them. And we dove in headfirst on Sunday with a challenging passage. So turn again to John 6, verse 53. John 6, 53. Am I wrong that, you know, when you see this slide on the board, you get a little impatient? Anybody? No? Well, I say it because I know I do, so being totally honest. But why are we always in a rush? Why do we, you know, I guess it's losing patience, isn't it? John six fifty three. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, talking about the Old Testament manna. He who eats this bread will live forever. He's talking about himself. If you look back to verse 35 in John 6, what does he say? You can take a quick peek in verse 35. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So back to verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. 
the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Notice, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. He's not talking about believers that left because the teaching got too tough. He's talking about those who did not believe from the beginning. These are unbelievers. And who it was that would betray him, he also knew. Verse 65, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his, of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. There's a whole lot in this passage we just read. But first of all, as we saw on Sunday, Jesus tells us all what true sustenance looks like. Look again at verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now hold your thumb there, and go to Matthew 4, verse 3, which we went to on Sunday. Matthew 4, 3. So Jesus just said, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. In Matthew 4, 3, the tempter came, which was Satan, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every what? Every word. So Jesus compared the bread that Satan was offering, to the bread of the word. So in John 6, Jesus said he was the true food, right? He said he was the true food. In Matthew 4, Jesus said the word was our true bread. Is this a contradiction? Of course not. Since Jesus is the word in John chapter 1. Jesus and the word are one and the same. The Word is the mind of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And just a reminder, remember what our Lord said as He was chatting with the Samaritan woman by the well, and the disciples were concerned He had nothing to eat. The Spirit brought us here about a month ago. What was sustaining Jesus? What was His sustenance? Go to John 4, verse 31. John 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, 
saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? Did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's his food. Doing the Father's will was his sustenance. It sustained him. He didn't even need physical food. It gave him energy. Do you think maybe God can give you supernatural energy as you obey his will for your life and serve others? You think that's possible for you? Well, by grace it is, right? Because God's all about grace. By grace it is. Through faith. So if you're a true believer, you know and you believe that he can do this for you too. You have food to eat that you don't know about. You may not know exactly how, but if he did it for Jesus for 40 days in the desert, he can certainly do it for you. We're trying to make it past lunchtime. Go back to John 6.55. John 6.55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. On the board, true sustenance. The bread of life, as in John 6, is a believer's true source of energy and life. Even if we die physically, we keep eternal life, the source of which is Jesus Christ himself, as in John 1.4. We saw this on Sunday too. John 1, 4 on the board, in him, Jesus Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is where unbelievers will stumble away. It doesn't rationally make sense. What do you mean in him is life? What do you mean, Jesus, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Unbelievers stumble away because it doesn't rationally make sense. And because they're relying on human logic instead of faith, they will fail the test every time. In John 6, we see many so-called disciples fall away. And this lack of faith, and ultimately lack of humility, is a way we can recognize false believers even among us. If it doesn't fit into their little comfortable box their little idea of God, the way they want God to be. If it doesn't fit into that, they run away. They flee. They pick and choose. They ignore the things that they can't grasp. And that's why there are so many different Jesuses now in this world, in churches even. Different Jesuses. I got a relative that believes in a different Jesus. They don't believe, you know, they're a sinner. It's like, again, just against who, which Jesus are you picking? Like, where did you get that from? It's not the one in the Word of God. But people will cling to their own thought of God so they can be comfortable. God submits to them, basically. They're not submitting to God and what He says is true. They want what suits them, not what suits God. 
and they can't accept the things of God because they're limited by human faculties, human rationalism, so much less, so much lower than God, so much more limited than God. So spiritual truths are going to be befuddling to them. On the board in 1 Corinthians 2.14, in the New Living Translation, but people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. God gives grace to the humble, we know. And by grace, He gives us faith, which is what helps us know the spiritual things mentioned here. Just follow the breadcrumb trail. So the apostles humbly received the Lord's words by grace through faith, and therefore they stood out among those who were pushed back and were realized to not be believers in the Lord. Go look again at John six sixty. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? On the board. Jesus asked a rhetorical question that he knew the unbelieving disciples would be forced to answer yes in their hearts. He later on makes the direct statement, But there are some of you who do not believe. In verse 64, this is really an amazing scene when you think about it. These were disciples. These were people that followed him around. So at first glance, they looked to be true. They looked to be real. But the real question is, why were they following him around? They probably all had different reasons, but not the good reason. So Jesus is pushing back. He's testing those who claimed to believe. Like we read before, he knew from the beginning that they didn't believe. So now it was time to weed them out. Now it was time to narrow down this large group following him to test to see who really believed him, even when he said something difficult, like my flesh, you know, is true food. So Jesus in this passage is sharing intimate things powerful spiritual truths with his disciples. But only his true disciples can accept them. How do they accept them? Because they understood what he was saying? I don't think so. They accepted him through faith. They accepted these difficult sayings through faith. It's not our ability, it's not even our own understanding of what he's saying. It's that we're willing to believe him even when we don't get it. Why? Because we're trusting in his person, his character. That's what saves a person, trusting in his person. I trust in him. I know he's perfect. I know he's my Lord and my Savior. Even though I don't get it right now, I'm choosing to trust in him. Again, that phrase, through faith. It's the only way it's possible to be a true disciple. So, as the Spirit's been teaching us, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a true believer. 
John 6 is the perfect example on the board regarding false disciples. Some people follow Jesus because, he, because he's the best option under scrutiny of human rationale. That is such a true statement. Think about it. He's the best option. In other words, I have nowhere else to go. What should I do with my Sundays? I know there's probably a God. So which one should I follow? Let me follow the one that's the most loving. Makes sense, right? They say Jesus is really loving. I'm going to go to that church because I want to do something good. I want to feel good about myself. Did they submit or surrender to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior? Or are they going for their own convenience? Some people follow Jesus because he's the best option under scrutiny of human rationale. This does not constitute salvation. Human rationale has nothing to do with God's grace. In fact, it's an obstacle. It's an obstacle to relying on God's grace. A true believer will accept the Lord's words through faith, even if they don't fully understand it. In other words, on the board, regarding true believers, instead of rationalizing and stumbling, they choose to obey and trust His words because they trust in His person as Peter did. Again, instead of rationalizing and stumbling, true believers choose to obey and trust His words because they trust in His person, as Peter did. It comes down to, do you trust this person? Do you trust Him? Regardless of difficult teachings or difficult life circumstances, do you trust his person even when you don't understand something? Like my you know, flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Do you trust his person? Do you trust that he'll explain it to you one day? Because you know him. Remember our conclusion last Tuesday on the board in 1 Peter 4.19? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Isn't it really that simple? Isn't it really a matter of faith? Through faith, that we can go on and live a joyful life despite not knowing everything or not understanding why we're going through certain things? Again, on the board, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In other words, I know he's doing the best thing for me. I know he'll do what's right. He can't not do what's right. He's a perfectly just God. Jesus is perfectly just and righteous and loving. I trust whatever he decides is best. And as we saw last week, when you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. No difference. So the Lord doesn't want us to question him in the sense of doubting him. Okay, it's okay to ask, what does this mean? But he doesn't want us to question him in the sense of doubting him. He wants us to believe him, believe in him, his person, who he is. Don't obey or listen, listen to human rationalism in your head. The Horshack raising his annoying little hand. That's the flesh trying to figure God out on its own which is impossible and a dead end. So stop it. 
Stop putting yourself through that. Stop saying, oh, I wish I had more faith. I wish I had more faith. Well, stop trying to be logical about everything, about everything then. How can you be logical about the things of God? How can you possibly be? I spoke with a Muslim man the other day, and he was using human rationale to try and explain away the fact that God entered into flesh in the person of Jesus. Totally using human rationale and philosophy. How could God leave heaven and enter into the body of a man and then still control everything? It doesn't make sense. That is such a human way to look at it, a limited way to look at it, right? So you're saying God can't do everything, basically, is what you're saying. But isn't he God? So that trap that, that, that fools a lot of intellectuals, a lot of very intelligent people in this world, is human rationalism. If it's not logical, if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to dismiss it. You can't understand spiritual things by making natural sense. It's foolishness. So when Jesus was asked who can listen to it, we have human rationale getting in the way. And this happened to many of his disciples, as we see in verse 60. So even in churches today, fleshly thinking and rationale distract people from his person. Just think about that for a minute. Fleshly thinking and rationale distract people from his person. They take their eyes off his person, his character, and integrity, who he is, and get caught up on the little things that they can't get right now. So while the apostles stand out in accepting Jesus' claims, the unbelievers stand out as well in this passage, refusing to accept his truth by faith. So on the board, we see the principle of unbelievers among us. Don't ever assume that everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a true believer. Jesus was never fooled by human interest in his person and works. So neither should we be. Again, look at John 6, verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? On the board, we also saw on Sunday the word stumble from scandalizo. It means to cause to stumble, to cause to sin, to cause to become indignant, shock, or offend. To become indignant, shock, or offend. The human flesh is always offended by the gospel truth. The human flesh wants to be in control. So it doesn't like this, and it's going to stumble. On Sunday, the Spirit brought up this question. What are the possible manifestations of this stumbling? How do, we, well, how do we see? How does this come out visibly in people? Even so-called Christians in churches today make up their own ways of worship. Pastors do it. Denominations do it. They make up their own way of worship. They pick and choose what they like about Jesus. And they throw out the rest in total disobedience to his word. So instead of the bread of life that sustains them, they have no real spiritual sustenance. 
It's a religious thing. It's a game, really. It's a religious thing to go through to appease the flesh, to make themselves feel better. Who knows all the different motivations that go along with that. But it's not to learn who their Lord and Savior is and to follow His every word. That's not the attitude. Many of these people call themselves Christians because their flesh believes in being a good person. And Jesus was a good person, so I guess I'll go in that direction. And that's pretty much where it ends for a lot of people in a lot of churches. But there's no surrender to Christ in many Christian churches, by many so-called Christians. There's no surrender to Christ. He's just a convenience. He's not their Lord and Savior that they know they have to answer to. He's not the Lord and Savior of humbled sinners. So this is what we see in John chapter 6. And the same thing goes on today in churches. When they encounter challenging things in the Word, they just dismiss and avoid them. Who can listen to it? I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go to another church that tickles my ears a little bit lighter and that gives money away, um, food away to the homeless, has whatever, soup kitchens, whatever. Nothing wrong with that. But some people are in it for that, to feel good about themselves. They don't want the truth. And in John 6, many were proven to be false disciples. I don't know about you, but that word many surprises me. Because these, we're not talking about many of all people. We're talking about many of his disciples that were following him. Proved to be false. But Jesus said only few would find him. And the path is narrow. Think about it. Even amongst his disciples, many proved themselves false professors. False professors. They claimed to be believers. But they weren't in their heart. And this came out on Sunday on the board regarding true believers. If the name Jesus or what he stated as truth makes a person stumble, there's a problem, even if they call themselves a Christian. If the name Jesus or what he stated as truth makes a person stumble, there's a problem in their soul. Something's wrong, even if they call themselves Christians. That's not a characteristic of a true believer. I was talking to Sarah on Sunday after the message, and she was saying how she works with a churchgoer on her job. But when she says something to her like, I just love Jesus, she gets a funny look on her face, on the churchgoing friend's face. So why is that? Why is that? Isn't she a Christian? Why does her Christian friend have a funny look on her face when Sarah says, I just love Jesus? Why is that odd, in other words, right? If you're really a Christian, if you really realize that Jesus paid for your sin and you humbled yourself and you accept the reality of the situation, that you're, you're hopeless without him and you've turned to him for your very salvation, why would you react oddly to someone saying, I just love Jesus? Something might be wrong in that person's soul. 
you just don't know why some people go to church and if they really believe. So don't take salvation for granted in any other person. If um, the Spirit's taught us anything over the last year and a half or so, that's one of the major principles. Don't take salvation for granted in any other person, even if they call themselves a Christian. Realize you might be in their lives to challenge their faith, just like Jesus did in John 6. You might be in their lives to challenge their faith in some way, maybe to get them the true gospel that they maybe haven't even heard in their own church. Don't assume anything, folks, because the word is not taught very well in a lot of churches. So, um, as we begin to close, hold your thumb in John 6 and go to 1 John 4, verse 1. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, so he's talking to true believers there, right? 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Remember last year sometime, the spirit instructed us to follow up, quote-unquote, with people who claim to be believers. He said, follow up with people that claim to be believers or Christians. Maybe asking them exactly what do they believe about being saved? Or exactly what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you think he is? This is why the Spirit told us to do that a year ago. There are many people living in darkness that give the religious impression that they're in the light, doing the right thing, quote-unquote, following the Lord even. There are many living in darkness that just do it for some type of a religious purpose. Not because they've surrendered to Christ. They don't know him as Lord and Savior. They haven't humbly turned to trusting in his person. I hope you see what the Spirit's getting at. And then we'll close with this. Go back to John 6, 62. On Sunday, we saw what really offends unbelievers is that they don't get to have a part in it. The flesh is bad. The flesh will keep striving for a piece of it. John six sixty two. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. On the board, the flesh profits nothing. 
This is just about the most offensive statement that human flesh can ever hear. You don't have a part in this. It hates hearing that. The very nature of human flesh is that it receives credit, like Horshack. It wants to receive credit. <laughs> oh, DJ. I know who's going home to look at that on YouTube tonight, right? It wants, just give me a little credit. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm trying my best. Just give me a little credit in this salvation equation. For years I struggled with this. Growing up in the denomination, I did. And it's so haunting. That's what the flesh does. It haunts. It's like, give me a piece of the pie. Just a little piece. I just want a sliver. You can keep 99% God. I just want you to know that I'm doing my best. That's the flesh. It's so gross, isn't it? But it's so there. If you speak with a so-called Christian who can't allow their pride to drop their own involvement in salvation, you're most likely dealing with an unbeliever. So again, I'm going to say that one more time. Just think about this. And this happened with another relative of mine recently who says they believe in Jesus, but when I ask them how they're going to heaven, I'm a good person, I do my best. Deceived. Deceived. They're believing in a different Jesus. If you speak with a so-called Christian who can't allow their pride to drop their own involvement in salvation, you're most likely dealing with an unbeliever. So don't accept what they say. Don't rest on that. Ask them a couple questions. Follow up. Be like, what do you mean by that? Aren't you a sinner? Can a sinner please God? Get them thinking at least. Get them, because they're obviously lost, right? Because they want that little piece of pie, and that is not surrendering to Christ by grace, relying on grace through faith for salvation. Amen? Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your spirit. Help us humbly be before you at all times. Help us to submit to your word and your spirit. Help us to drop the flesh, Father, and help us to just rely on you for everything, by grace, through faith. We know we're nothing without you. That's why your son had to come in the first place. And Father, we ask that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. Only you can do it, Father. Please use us to your glory, and your Spirit can do the rest. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.